Apohor jam user, janus mon fin ono hobione, jan mis ki simlus imias janari. Welcome to Con Lyre, the podcast by constructed languages and the people who create them. I'm George Corley. Uh, with me down the road a ways is William Annis. Hello. And over in California, we have David Peterson. <laughs> okay, now I have to, to uh, put that little conversation we had in the outfit. Anyway. Oh, and by the way, just for you, the leaf blower has started outside as well. <laughs> so, um... Well, I'm not hearing that, so... Oh, you will be. You will be. But yeah, this is a this is the rip-roaring start on my end. Great big California welcome to you all. <laughs> maybe maybe you can you can uh, selectively mute mute your your mic at certain points. I will mute it, but muting is something that I cannot do. I cannot self-censor. That is un-American. Okay. Anyway, so our topic for today is going to be pigeons and creoles. So these are uh, sort of sort of a result of different kinds of um, language language co- context situations. The the sort of standard theory that I've heard repeated over and over is the idea of a pigeon forms when two groups don't have a common language and they sort of partially learn each other's languages. And then a Creole is what develops when children acquire that pigeon as a native language. That, that to a certain extent can occur, but, uh, it's a lot more complex. There's a lot, there, there are, are some other sort of pathways that can happen, but the basic gist of it is that for Creoles, you have a sort of a mix of two languages, and it's not necessarily like it's not going to be like you put both of them into a mixing bowl and store all, all the lexemes and grammar and such. It's more of you usually have one language, which is the what's called the lexifier or the um, I don't know. Do people use the term superstratum or? No, but but, let me let me simplify this. Yes, let me simplify this. Every single natural language is a Creole (laughs) and a podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Language, language. Uh, Okay, but yeah, no substrate. I've heard substrate and uh, substrate and superstrate. I've heard substratum and superstratum. I have not. Sub, I'm, I am an idiot then. Anyway, no, but the, the, the basic idea is usually when you have a, a, a Creole, what hap- usually one language is going to give you the bulk of the words and, uh, the grammar is a little bit more complicated. I'm going to hand it over to you, David, now, since you just made an interesting claim that I want you to defend a little bit. <laughs> I make no promises since I just learned what a Creole was yesterday. Not true, not true. All right, so uh, this is, so I said that all natural languages are Creoles, and this is basically true, because essentially all that a Creole is, is just, it's just a language, but we can more, uh, with more certainty, and with more, in more recent time depth than any other language, identify, pinpoint where and how it started. Mm-hmm. So, um and uh, there is, and in addition, most of these creoles that we've seen have very similar origin stories, shall we say. So, um, goodness gracious, there, Scat Cat is messing with the wires. He was trying to unplug me <laughs> to deal with the truth I'm spitting. But anyway, um, so, uh, but in effect, what you see with creole languages is simply taking lexical material and using it to produce new grammatical structures, which is exactly what every single language on the planet does and has done since time immemorial. 
The difference is that um, the languages that we speak on Earth go back thousands and thousands and thousands of years, whereas with um, a lot of the Creole languages that are, are usually discussed as Creole languages, we can pinpoint the start dates to, you know, times from like the 17 or 18 or even 1900s. Mm-hmm. And so we know, uh, even though we didn't have video cameras before, you know, the 1900s, we have enough records to basically kind of piece together how the story, uh, how the languages were produced. And so we know, like, for example, with, um, and this is where, so you brought up uh, the idea that Creoles um, happen automatically when children are born and take on the pidgin languages as their own languages. That's not quite true. Mm -hmm. Um, It's both not that simple and also it doesn't always happen that way. So like, for example, um, in in Micronesia or Melanesia, whichever of those terms is correct at the moment, like your pick, what would happen is that they would set up these indentured uh, or these plantations that would have indentured servants where they'd go to the various islands um, and kind of pick people off at random, really. And, you know, there's a lot of linguistic diversity in that area. So it was rare that you'd get people from the same language group. In fact, they tried not to do that specifically so that you wouldn't have, um, you know, people from the same tribe that would then band together and try to overthrow plantation owners. They tried to get different people who spoke different languages. And they only took able-bodied men. So like men between the ages of, say, you know, 15 and 40, um, they would take them from their, their families. They wouldn't take any women or children because they couldn't work and they didn't want the men to be distracted. I mean, scare quotes there. And um, they would have them work for a period of seven to 10 years and then they would send them back home. And um, it was on these plantations that uh, the language that would become Tokpising was born. Um, and crucially, there were no children there. Um, it was basically it just kind of began its life as pigeon. You know, that all these people were there, didn't speak the same language, weren't taught English, but rather heard English and were heard, you know, kind of given English. And so kind of built this language from scratch that started off, uh, you know, a bit haphazardly the way pigeons do. And eventually over the years, creolized. And then that language itself began to be used widely when it was brought back to the islands and, you know, the plantations were gone and all that. And now it's uh, kind of one of the main languages of Papua New Guinea. It has official status in Papua New Guinea, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, that that in English and I think one other language. But I'm going to forget what it is. Out of the something like 860 that are there. Oh, I think it's like 3,000. It's ridiculous. (laughs) <laughs> I've, I've heard okay. stories. No, it's true. I've heard stories about people in Papua New Guinea who just like speak five languages as a matter of course because they have to. Um, and then, you know, sometimes they learn other ones. Uh, it sounds like, it sounds like the best place, the best place in the world, though apparently not a place you really want to visit at the moment, I guess. They're not doing so hot. Yes. So one, th- and I forget where I read it. Um, I've heard at least that there's at least one idea that for a Creole to develop, you don't need uh, that having two different languages is insufficient, that you need at least three different languages. Um, otherwise, one language oh. will simply dominate. Well, that's interesting. That's an interesting um, idea. Uh, maybe I, I mean, not everyone agrees with it, but it's it's an idea floating around there as well. Uh, well it, it, maybe um, it came from John McWhorter and his, his books about uh, the, the, uh, the, the lack of Spanish-based Creoles. Um, it could have come from there. But uh, it makes sense. Anyway, uh, go ahead, George. Uh, Well, I mean, you do hear a lot about, you know, David, you were just talking about the origin of Tokisin. I've heard that involved in other, at least I know that um, that that is, and I I, unfortunately don't have that much uh, info on this, but I've heard that uh, that's a factor in um, some of the... uh, some of the uh, Creoles formed by uh, African slaves in in the U.S. and and other places is that they were also from a variety of different tribes that and um, so they spoke different languages on the boat going right. over. So they had to they had to deal with whatever the dominant language was where they got shipped to. 
Yeah, and 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 they couldn't, and and I think that was maybe that's one of the ideas behind this theory is that if you had just two language groups, mm. you know, you'd probably just usually what would happen in that situation is you probably designate somebody who was the language person, and they'd kind of try their best to learn the dominant language. And then everybody else would just not learn it mm-hmm. and speak their own language because they are, they already have their cohesive group. There's no reason for them to need to learn a new language or to invent uh, a new communication system since, you know, they, they mm-hmm. have, um, they have, uh, they, they have, you know, their own language. They can speak to each other and they have a portal to the dominant group, essentially. And then, of course, over time, it would just it, eventually, you know, the, the dominant language would just take over and be lost. Yeah. Although sort of on another point, you know, we we talk about we started talking about Creoles in as something that's involved in language contact. It's mm-hmm. hard to say, like, we're we get talking too much about this is going to get into sort of the theoretical weeds of it. But it's sort of like you do get sort of patterns of influence involved in, in, you know, situations of language shift where basically one, one thing that people who study minority languages, um, talk about is like one factor that they, they look at is how much grammar is the language borrowing from the dominant language, that sort of thing, which it's not necessarily the same sort of thing that, that is going in in a classic Creolization scenario, but you know, I know that uh, in Creoles, there's you know, talk about you know how the both of the source languages are influencing what the shape of the Creole is like. What do you? What about the debate about sort of universal traits of Creoles? Where, right. where do you think? What do you think about that? Really, there are two theories. Mm-hmm. Um, about uh well there are, there are a few theories but there are two main theories that i think are worth looking at when it comes to the idea that a lot of creoles are very similar um the but the the first one i'll, I'll throw out is that um a lot of the creoles that were under discussion were either english or french based uh, True. those were the, those were the lexifiers and so you know, it shouldn't be surprising if two entirely unrelated english based creoles look very similar <laughs> um, you know, so I don't know. Um, but, um, beyond that though, there were, there were two theories. One was, uh, one was, um, Derek Bickerton's bio program and the other was John McWhorter's, um, prototype theory. Um, John McWhorter's theory is, is a bit simpler. So I'll just go over that one first. His idea was that, um, it, it was almost, um, it was almost a, a descriptive theory mm. that, um, uh, Creoles tend to share a lot of features, and and he and he listed those features. One of the one of his famous ones was that uh, Creoles didn't have tone, and then there was some Creole that had tone, and it it led to a whole big I don't know storm in a teapot that you know wasn't extremely uh, worth attention. But um, his idea was that uh, they that you would try to simplify every area of grammar, uh, that the uh, a Creole grammar at its earliest stages is always simpler than either any of the languages that it's, that's giving to it. And so kind of in every, every little part, there are things that you can expect because of the simplification. Um, Derek Bickerton's bio program was a much stronger statement, which was that Creole languages um, are actually the visible forms of universal grammar of Chomsky's universal grammar. Um, That's, that's what I was getting out of, out of it from, from reading about that. Yeah. And his idea was, was very simple. Is that first you, uh, you have adults producing a pigeon because they're incapable of, uh, of actually producing a full language um, because they're adults. Um, and then the moment that children are born, they take the pigeon and immediately turn it into a Creole, um, a fully functional language. And it will have uh, within narrow boundaries all of the exact features of universal grammar, because the idea is that the language won't have I'm sorry, the children won't have adequate linguistic input. And so what they will do is simply take all of the features that are already implanted into their brain somewhere and. Um, 
uh, that are the language features that comprise universal, universal grammar, and they will map it on to the lexical material that they're hearing. And this was a very uh, popular theory in, in Chomsky and circles. I don't know how seriously people take it anymore. My, my hope would be not at all because <laughs> it's silly. Um, and there's just, there, there are examples where that clearly didn't happen because, you know, there were no children, um, uh -huh. which was one of the key components of the theory. Yeah. And then for, for myself, I, I don't really follow either one per se. Yeah. I, that is, uh, I don't know if, um, I don't know if it's even, even very meaningful to say that there's a prototype for Creole languages. Well, I mean, well, let's, let's, let's bring it down a little bit and let's, okay. let's, let's bring it down from the theory because the thing is point four, or at least for, you know, conlangers, which is, you know, who we're doing the show for, unless we All can right. give really any like specific, unless we get uh, the only thing that really matters there is like what sort of specific features you would tend to see in creoles so like um right yeah, you you mentioned simplicity you're i'm i'm assuming you're talking about creoles tend to be sort of morphologically more simple than either of the source languages right well yeah I, actually let's let's get into that because that's mm -hmm. that's important but before that I will share with you a bit of gossip so I I did take a, a pigeons and creoles class from John McWhorter in the fall of 2001 uh -huh. and he said that he was presenting his work at a conference and and Derek Bickerton was there and then uh -huh. apparently at, at one point in time Derek Bickerton and he and he was apparently joking but Derek Bickerton who is white said to John McWhorter who is black um you're you're just like a, a an ape in a tree twine, trying to swipe at the dominant male. Uh, he was talking about John McWhorter attacking Whoa. the final program. <laughs> Whoa! That's yeah. okay. So, um, that's so like, it, it, apparently what John McWhorter said is like he was, he was really joking and it probably didn't occur to him how racist that sounded, but, but he done said it. <laughs> Goodness. Anyway. So, so. One thing I want so, to yeah. just anyway, mention gossip, gossip. Yeah, linguistic Go gossip. Ahead. Yeah, that's fun. So just in passing, um, there is an equivalent of walls for pigeons and creoles. The Atlas of Pigeon and Creole Holy Language shit. Structures Online. That's awesome. You didn't know yeah. this? Yeah, no, I didn't know that. Oh, I, sorry. Anyway, so you can find out what is truly um, very common and what really isn't very common across creoles. It is very, very common for them to have SVO word order. But mm -hmm. after that, it all kinds of falls, it all falls apart. Um, it's harder to see really strongly dominant, um, patterns in many of these, um, parameters they have listed, of which there are, what, 140, 130. And they have a good diversity. If you look at their list of lexifiers, it's not just the, the European based Creoles, English and French and Spanish. They also have Arabic based, Bantu based, yes. um, Malay, uh, Malay, Malay based creoles. Yeah. So that's, uh, that's, that's also a plus since, you know, a diverse sample will give you much better data. Yep. Um, oh, that's incredible. And I imagine you're going to put the link in the show notes. It's yeah, already, I will. Yep. 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 It's a great thing. All right. Cool. Um, I, there was, there was something that came up. Oh, yeah. Um, regarding the, the SVO word order, I think that, uh, that you'll find it, looking beyond creoles, there's a strong co-occurrence between SVO word order in languages that lack case marking, um, in general. And then there are, I'd say, a lot of pigeons and creoles that don't mark case. Oh, that's, um, yes, that's interesting. That, that, yeah. that, that could be an, sort of an interesting, that, that, that could be sort of a cor correlation. So looking at this. Yeah. I'm finding, uh, so yeah, okay, it is, it is actually a bit of a bias. It's not, you know, because for, just to, to remind people, if you were to look uh, at the regular walls, most languages end up falling into SVO or SOV, and then VSO is sort of, uh, a little bit further along third, and then the other word orders are pretty rare. Yeah. Not, yeah. not, you know, non-existent, but pretty rare. As much as 
the there are people who would like to claim they're non-existent. But anyway, <laughs> the so uh, it is an interesting thing that they tend to be subject verb object. But you know what David said about case marking could be one thing involved, and it's you not. Know, it's, it, good. Um, it's not going to be the case necessarily that like if you're creating a creole, it's going to have like no inflectional morphology or no no derivation morphology. It, we never deal in absolutes here, uh, but uh, it's just going to be a little tend to be a little bit less. Hmm? Well, uh, I'd say the the way to, to qualify that is that. Um, well, when you say that the, the Creole grammar is going to be simpler, it's going to be simpler from any of the languages that it drew from. It's not necessarily going to be simple. Yeah. Right. Um, and, fur- and, and furthermore, it's a starting point. Mm-hmm. So um, it, just a very simple example is the example of uh, transitivity marking in Tokpising, mm-hmm. where verbs are marked for whether they are transitive or intransitive, which is something that doesn't happen in English. And is more difficult or more complex than English in that regard. Um, however, it might be uh, less complex than some of the languages that it was drawing from. But uh, the way that it happened was that um, it, it, it all came from lexical material. So if you have a verb like, uh, just a second, let me pull out my dictionary here. Uh, oh, this is the English to, to Wetchy side of it. Oh, broom. Oh, that's a good one. Okay. So, to sweep, the, it, it just took the, the noun for broom and it becomes a verb. So, broom. All right. And then in the oldest form of the language, you'd say, like, I don't know, like, uh, me broomen. Like, I sweep it. Mm-hmm. But, um, then what happens is that that kind of came to be a unit. And so you say, like, you know, me broomen, me broomen floor. Right? That's the word for floor. Oh, wait a minute. Actually, I can look up what the word for floor is. Can't I? Household terms. Oh, I see. I see. Hold on. Ah, bikum. Okay, no, no, no. How about we sweep the big room? So, mi broom bikum. All right, I, I sweep the floor. That would be like the oldest one. Mm-hmm. And then there's like mi brumen. I, I sweep it. And then that kind of coalesced so that now you have to say uh, mi brumen bikum. So, um, uh-huh. that little im suffix just means it's transitive. Whereas if you oh. want to say, like, I don't know, I'm just sweeping, you say mi broom or mi broom. Uh, me broom around or something like that. Yeah. So um, it was just, and then, and of course, you can see where it came from. It came from the pronoun him, um, and it came about because it was being used in object position. But then it just became new morphology. That's basically how all languages do everything. If they take lexical material, it starts to get used in a particular position. It coalesces, it becomes morphology. Uh, the only problem is that when there's been about 7,000 years in between that and now, uh, the sources are obscured. And um, since there are no uh, written resources for the early stages of most of our languages, we can't go back and hunt it out. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, any time that we do have the data available, you can always find that there's a lexical source for grammatical material. Um, and so, in effect, for a conlanger, looking at uh, Creole is extremely instructive because you can see the types of things that human beings do with lexical material at the very beginning stages, which can be obscured by older languages that look magical because you don't know the history. Right. Like uh, the, the the grammar of Arabic uh, with its triconsonantal root system looks completely magical and artificial until you start going back all the way as far as you go, as far back as you can go, like proto Afroasiatic, and you see how the system arose. And it's like, oh, actually, that that makes sense. Uh huh. Yeah, it's um, that's it's a very interesting point to to be made is that Creole languages might be simpler at the start, but they felt just be prone to all the same grammaticalization processes that any other language is, and you know, eventually they'll get you know they'll acquire all the cruft that all the all the older languages. Have already, or they may keep quite a lot of the cruft. I mean, I want to go back to what mm-hmm. David said. The language is simpler than the lexifier and right. other languages that are inputting it. I mean, um, Kituba is a Niger Congo flavored um, Creole mm-hmm. that takes most of its material from Kikongo, 
which has, you know, the mass class system that you expect of a Bantu language in that area. And Kituba has simplified it, but compared to, you know, your native speaking, your native English speaking person, it's still going to seem outrageously lush and complicated. Right. Um, right. So simplifier than Kikongo, but not simple. And that actually gets to another question I wanted to ask about. If you are, if you are a naturalistic conlanger that wants to set in a con world a Creole language, is it how, to what degree would it be necessary for you to construct the source languages first? I think you would, should at least have some good idea about the broad, what the broad strokes of those languages are. Um, possibly, at least for the lexifier language, do a, a fair bit of, uh, the lexicon for that in order to you know, have words to then manipulate into the, the Creole language. Right. Um, right. So I think, well, I think what it is, mm-hmm. is that, I mean, obviously the best situation is going to be you have all the languages fully detailed. But um, the idea with the substrate languages in particular, uh, mm-hmm. and, and, and definitely you're going to need to have that lexifier language pretty well worked out. But with the substrate languages, what you're really defining for these speakers is their assumptions about how language works. Mm-hmm. Because um, especially if you're a monolingual speaker, everything that you think about how language works and how language could possibly work comes from your own language. Mm-hmm. And so if you if you find yourself in a situation in a situation where, you know, contact situation where a Creole is forming, um, everything that you're going to do is going to be based on first your imperfect understanding of the lexifier language. And then second, as your ultimate backup, it's going to be how you think language can work, like the only way that language could possibly work. And so um, some of those foundational assumptions are going to be different depending on uh, what language the speakers have. And that's going to color how that Creole is going to form, um, maybe not in every way, but in some, some slight ways, some small ways. Um, mm-hmm. that, that could be interesting. I, there's, here's a good example. I'm looking at the the Creole walls here, and... Even when English is the lexifier, it's very common for the languages, like slightly more than half, in fact, for them to distinguish an expression for identity of a noun phrase, like I am a doctor, and a noun phrase, or Mm -hmm. a, a prepositional phrase, I am at the doctor. So we're used to languages that distinguish a copula for identification and a separate kind of verb for indicating location. English just uses to be most right, of the time. Right. And yet here we have all of these English-based or, you know, English-influenced um, Creoles who have, for whatever reason, presumably based on other sort of language input, decided that they're going to have separate expressions for noun identity and expressing location. That's, that's interesting. Uh, so where do they tend, is, does there talk about where they tend to get the, the second verb for, for the, the, the ones lexified by English? Because obviously English doesn't have those two verbs. Right. Uh, Actually, I think one They get them actually from the same place that, uh, I was going to say that natural languages do, um, or non-creoles do, which are verbs that stand. Yeah. That's, stay, Stand things like that. Sit. That, yeah, that's what I would I would uh, presume. Things like stand. Stand is where where it came from in romance. Anyway, so right. Stay. Stay is what is is what's used in Hawaiian Creole mm-hmm. English. A lot of the a lot of the English based um, uh, African Creoles use day. Forget where that yeah. there. It comes from there. It comes right. from there. T h e r e. Oh, okay. That makes yeah. sense. Right. So that, that, again, as David said, that's, that's a good place that, that's a good example of what you were saying. You can look at Creole languages just as a general, an easier to under, uh, an easier to see example of how grammaticalization can work. You see a functional verb coming from uh, a particular set of of lexemes in that case. So, you know, you can probably find a lot of other cases like that. Does Tokbisin have, like, a more fleshed out um, pronoun system that's kind of interesting? Oh, uh, sure. The Yumitopela, whatever. 
Yeah. So um, what happens with Tokpisin is so they have the just a, a three three pronouns. So me, you, and um, M. M mm-hmm. stands for he, she, or it. Um, mm-hmm. And then they have a plural marker, Pela, which comes from Fela. Mm-hmm. Um, and that can be applied to any of those. Mi Pela, you Pela. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, and then, any Pela? Goodness gracious. How am I forgetting this? Sorry. Where's just the, I know that you don't have the book I'm looking at, but where is just the, the, the pigeon to English version? Hmm. Hold on. The Wikipedia, on. the Wikipedia article has the pronoun chart. Oh, okay. oh, oh, there you go. Anyway, so yeah, take take it out. Take it take it from me, William. <laughs> yeah, it's just uh they have the singular me you M. Um but like so many languages of the region, in the non singular you have an exclusive inclusive distinction. So the yes. plural um exclusive is Mipela, um and right. the first inclusive is either you Mipela or just you me. Oh, and this is the thing that I was I was thinking about is that um, there's also they have dual and trial plural pronouns and it looks like those just incorporate the English number words. Yes. So you have you. me to pela and you me to pela and then me tripela you me tripela. But I, I'd have to say I I would guess that uh, that you me to pela would be really rare because mm. you me kind of takes care of it. I don't know. That, yeah, I don't know. I mean, why I, Why would you? Well, but you me pay la. Dude, let's Google it. Yeah. God, I love the internet. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Yeah. Okay. You me tu Let's see. Oh, they have you me as well. You me is the plural. The 5,670 results. Now, you me. Oh, but that's going to be, that's going to get a bunch of other stuff, isn't it? Yeah, it might. Sorry. But yeah, unfortunately, okay, we don't for have. Okay, has has eighteen thousand nine hundred results. Mm-hmm. Not definitive, but uh, I'm seeing a lot of examples with just uh, of, of of fluent examples of just you me. Yeah. Whereas with you me Tupela, I was getting a lot of uh, referential results, like in dictionaries and stuff. Sure. Oh, okay. So although it's hard to say, you know, we don't have you know a corpus here, but that's that's. Sort of an indication, possibly, yeah, that uh, that you meet Pela might not be that that uh, common. But in it, any case, the point it's is interesting. The derivation is interesting. The, the point is yeah. a common pattern of languages of the region has been created out of existing lexical material um, to do something English doesn't yeah. care about, um, but using mm-hmm. English, the the base vocabulary from English to produce the results. Mm-hmm. You, you could you could think of this as like you know where you can get very interesting uh at an early stage get get very very interesting you know if if this went under further reductions in the future this you 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 could end up with you know completely different forms for each of these and not be able to recover where the original uh came from right exactly Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Holy cow! Mm-hmm. Sorry, I was just looking at uh, this walls thing, and there's a single Creole in their database that has ergative alignment. Oh, well, uh, <laughs> I'd like to hear the story about that. What are the source languages? Well, it's of course in Australia. Oh, of course. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, that makes sense. Gurindji, G U R I N D J I Creole K R I O L. I'm not going to look it up now, but I thought that was interesting. Most, as you would expect, have neutral alignment on nouns. That is, there's no marking at all, um, with a small mm. number with accusative alignment in well, all over the place. Mm-hmm. But that that seems to be as you would expect. But you know, yeah. interesting. Find the one ergative example. Uh, that's that's uh, that's one thing. Uh, I do want to say is like if you have something that seems universal and then one language doesn't do it it's well not you know <laughs> then it's not universal you, you know i think i i i often feel that you know so many of the things that that we think of as universal are probably sort of statistically more likely and uh that's relevant for conlang because you know, it's the old Anadu right. uh, idea is, you know, don't be too afraid of of 
breaking something that seems like universal because somebody may find a language buried somewhere in Papua New Guinea that actually uh, doesn't work that way. Not buried somewhere, but up in the mountains somewhere. Right. <laughs> up in a tree. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 215 people have a language that does exactly that thing. They're all language. Ah, I love it and I hate it. <laughs> no, I don't really hate it. Uh, so, um, nah. Hmm. But, uh, shoot. Now, uh, what, what, what was I going to say? I want you to remind me. Unfortunately, we are not in your mind, David. It's really, really a shame. I don't understand where else you would be. <laughs> I, I, by the way, I've totally, totally gotten distracted by this website, which I love. Like, in my opinion, this functions better even than Walls. Mm-hmm. Unless, unless Walls has had a big change since the last time I've been there. Walls has been updated um, in the last six months, so you might find Walls more agreeable to interact with now. That is nice. That is nice. But, um, mm, but yeah, this is just wonderful. Anyway, um, but, so, yeah, to, to bring this back to, to Conlangy in generality, um, I think it's, it's really, uh, the real key takeaway, at least for somebody building a natural, naturalistic language, is that um, if you go back far enough, everything pretty much comes from a lexical source. Um, and I think that creels are a wonderful way to get a window into that. Um, but it's like I've almost gotten to the point now where when I'm when I'm looking at a naturalistic conlang, I want to see an explanation for how the the verb tense system arose. Mm-hmm. Like where it where it came from, um, and if I don't, I'm disappointed. Well, um, and and so that happens a lot when I look at my own con lane. <laughs> I'm greatly disappointed. Yes, yeah. Well, and, I mean, uh, I, that's that's an interesting thing, and con lane should be sort of um, short of inspired to drive some at least some of their grammar from from grammaticalization of, of lexical items in in various ways. But at the same time, do you need I don't know if you really need to do anything. Depend especially sort of depending on what kind of time depth you want to start with. Because, you know, going back too far in the past with when when you're derived dealing with your proto language can be a can be a bit time consuming and difficult. Um well, yeah. I mean, yeah. So this whole that, endeavor is time consuming and, and the entire thing is time consuming, but I'm just saying that different conlangers are probably going to make different decisions on where to put their work and how much work they're going to do in a particular uh part of conlanging. I I understand, you know, there there are a lot of advantages to actually going back and doing a proto-language and doing at least some degree of historical development. But it's like, for my own languages, I'm not sure I ever want to go back further than about a thousand years, which is plenty enough time to get a lot of interesting things happening. But, um, you know, there are other people who, you know, I've seen one guy who wants to to develop languages for... A hundred thousand years, and I can't imagine that because it's like further than any any real language has ever been traced back. It'd be a lot to keep track of. But some people want to do more things than other people do. Well, I mean, well, um, yeah. first of all, it depends on the goals of the language. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I mean, yeah, it's, and and it's kind of like I mean, you know, it, of course, since conlanging is just a thing that humans do. If you don't want to do it, then you don't have to. But also, if the language doesn't call for it, then it doesn't need it. Mm. Um, it's just when the language does call for it, then then maybe it does. Mm. Um, or at the very least, you know, it's something that you could state at the beginning. This is this is kind of where I'm going. And mm-hmm. um, and you know, and 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 by the way, if you're if you have beings that live a hundred thousand years, it makes sense to go back a hundred thousand years. So um, anyway, the the people that invented the language are still speaking it. Mm-hmm. So one thing I'll mention in passing to sort of blow my own horn here is one of the things I did in the Conlanger's Thesaurus is where I have information about certain kinds of common grammaticalization that words are used for, I've written them down. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, that's cool. So How's how's that coming, by the way? uh, (laughs) Fine. 
Um, I uh, recently discovered a source that had a zillion beautiful semantic maps, and it's taking a while to make them all pretty and work them into the update. Um, I used, uh, you got the book recently, didn't you, David? Heine and Kuteva's World Lexicon of Grammaticalization or whatever it was? Yeah. Oh, so much fun. Yeah, it's a good one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's a, oh, by the way, speaking of a totally random occurrence, there's a language called Baca, where their word for go is go. Huh. That happens. <laughs> yeah, that's fun. Anyway, um, yeah, that, that, that's a good one. It, um, doesn't go into a lot of depth, but it does go into a lot of breadth, and that's that's very very nice. Um, especially since there doesn't appear to be a book like Bybee et al.'s on nouns, so they're they're looking at TMA marking. I would love to see a book like that specifically on noun number, noun case, noun derivation, things like sure, that. Sure. That would just be mm-hmm. uh, that would just be wonderful. You know, I I emailed Joan Bybee. Um, and I said, you know, I, I let her know how much I enjoyed her work and that I was going to be in New Mexico, literally less than six miles from where she taught on campus. Uh, and, and that, you know, I was, I was hoping to be able to, to meet with her. And she said that was nice. <laughs> uh, in other words, she, she didn't meet with you? No, that's all right. She does good work. And, um, I believe she's retired at this point. She can do whatever she wants. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. Uh, anyway, unless there's any other sort of last minute things, I think I, we can sort of wrap up this show. Yep. Okay. Should, should we, uh, should we, should we bring in, should we bring in the age old argument about morphemes and what have you? Talk for another <laughs> five hours. No. Uh, let's, 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 let's leave the, uh, the morphemes uh, for maybe another episode. Sure. Actually, though, I will tell you this. If you're, if you're approaching this method and you go back to the very beginning and you're just working with lexical material, you'll find that, um, uh, concepts like morphemes don't even matter because at this point, you know where every single piece of every single thing came from, what mm-hmm. its lexical source was. And so it doesn't even matter what you call it anymore. <laughs> Right. It's but, just uh like, well, this this thing became an affix at this point. But but don't take that as license to produce exactly the sort of thing that or one of the, the things that makes David so cranky about the word morpheme. Creole languages, even though they tend to be morphologically simple, um are still not mechanically compositional. By that, I mean you do not simply get Absolutely. two things smacked together and a particular ending always, always, always means one thing. That simply doesn't happen. You get lots of non-predictable word meanings resulting from common combinations. Um, right? You might have a, a right. particular form that converts nouns into adjectives, and it may not be, you know, esperantically, uh, conlinguistically regular. Mm-hmm. So I just want to warn you against mm-hmm. that. Yeah. Always always remember the word emergency. Think about that. <laughs> uh, and the fact and and the fact that, that uh disintegration is not exactly the opposite of integration in English. Can I tell a story about you, Ben? Okay, I have to say something about emergency because um, oh, congratulations, by the way. It's the first time I've talked to you in, 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 you know, real life, in spoken language. Congratulations to George joining the company of, of married people. Uh, soon. Yes, How very can... soon. But, um, on, uh, July 26th. Holy um, cow. Yeah. By the way, that was, let me just say, that was really quick from engagement to wedding. You realize that, right? Yes, it's very quick. There, there, there are, there are reasons, but, uh, it'll, it'll be, uh, it, it, it will be, uh, by the hair of our teeth. So, um, but, uh, we will, we will, this, 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 this is a thing that's going to happen. Um, and Lee is right over, over there. I don't know. She's a little busy right now. I don't know if she wants to say hi, but, um, uh, I, I wanted to mention, and I was giving her permission to tell a story, but um, you you saying emergency reminded me, you know, she, so Lee is from China, and um, 
she speaks English very well, but like occasionally there are little interesting things where, for example, she uses emergent to mean that something is an emergency. Something say something is emergent. So that highlights the thing of, you know, it's sort of over-regularizing what emergency comes from in actual English in, you know, native, native English speakers generally don't do that. But that's, uh, yes, I am using my, my fiance as a source of inspiration for, uh, linguistics research and Conway. Wow. <laughs> Man, so it's like, gosh, you know, I was on my way home, but then I had to make an emergent gas stop. Yes. Get gas. I like that, that actually. I like that. That is a back yeah. formation that should be more widely used. Yes. Yeah. I, what, what do we do? I think we just use emergency as an adjective, don't we? Like I had to make an, a, you know, an emergency stop. Yeah, we just use it as an uh, adjective. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, That's stupid. We could, but, we, we could have an like, emergent but, break. She she often uses it uh it like predicatively like uh something mm-hmm. is emergent which is we we can't even really we don't really do that very often we we say like something is an emergency right something yeah. like that um mm-hmm. so I need you here it's emergent <laughs> yes in fact I in fact we, you know what we, that sounds like it sounds like a fortification of urgent it's not just urgent it's emergent. Anyway, with that, I think we can end the show. So, uh, I will say, uh, first of all, David, you, you're not here very often. Is there anything, like, particularly you would like to, uh, call attention to before we go? I thought that there would be, but unfortunately, there is not. Okay. At least not at this time. Though apparently, this is, actually, no, I do want to mention this. When, did, when is this going up? Uh, probably the first of, uh, June. Oh, wow. Really? Yeah. Maybe I can't announce it then. Um, uh, so I guess it actually will not be important then because this is going to go up at a time where this will already be done, but I'm going to London next week. Oh, okay. Yeah. It just kind of came up out of nowhere. Like I was, I was doing an, and I was going to do an interview with these guys and I said kind of, uh, for Thronecast over uh, the, the channel that, Broadcast them. Uh, Thronecast is a, sh- is a show that analyzes Game of Thrones in London. And I said kind of jokingly, you know, you'd always uh, have me over there to be interviewed. And they said, "Oh wait, yeah, that's a good idea if you'd be willing." Like, <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so um, but yeah, it's happening really quick. So it's like, and it was unplanned. So it's like I don't have anything to do. I'm trying to figure out what I could do over there, and like if there's people I could meet or whatever. Well, so I guess we're we're oh, well. not going to be coming going up. This is not going to be going up quick enough for yeah to matter. But for you can you, you can put out the call on on Twitter and everything. You so. have to go yeah. to the British and, Museum. And in that case, also, but what Say you again? must go to the British Museum and gaze upon the Rosetta Stone. Oh, yeah. that sounds fun. Sounds fun. Yeah. Oh, shoot, that'd be cool. All right, so I'll I'll do that. And in fact, uh, I did do that. And it was awesome. <laughs> what what an amazing experience uh, seeing that Rosetta Stone. I mean, they threw me out after what I did to it, but you know, <laughs> I was gonna do that. We all knew I was gonna do that. So okay. So anyway, uh, then if there's no other things to talk about, then I'm just gonna say happy Conlangery. Thank you for listening to Conlangery. You can find our archives and show notes at conlangery.com. You can send questions, comments, or topic or featured language suggestions to conlangery at gmail.com. To submit a conlang or natlang greeting for the top of the show, see our contribute page for details. Web space for conlangery is provided by the Language Creation Society, and our theme music is by Null Device. I think it's important to let you know that I'm only I'm only minimally clothed. It's gorgeous outside. It pains me actually to close the door, but I did, and I did it for you. <laughs> Pennsylvania that... just uh, gave the okay to gay marriage. 
Oh, that's great. Yes. Anything related to Creoles and pigeons, perhaps? <laughs> uh, I don't think that they speak any pigeon languages in Pennsylvania. That's, that's going to make this rough, since our topic is um, gay marriage in Pennsylvania. Right. That's my opinion, and I'm free to express it. Oh, good. <laughs> yes, indeed you are. Um, so I am also I... free of consequences for expressing it. Okay, great. <laughs> um, perfect, perfect uh, American mode of argumentation. Um, Pigeons and Creoles. I also have a pretty big background in English where I do things like correct typos. So it's um, Lexifier, not Lexifer. Oh, is it Lexifier? <laughs> Sorry, yeah. oh, I like wow. Lexifer better, but Lexifier, fine. Oh, you typed that on purpose. Wow. Well, really? I always, I always thought it was Lexifier, too. Well, it is. I've, I didn't even know that Lexifer was a licit word. Um, it ought to be. It looks perfectly good, except for the fact that it mixes Greek and Latin. It, it, it looks like there is somebody with that name on League of Legends, so it counts. <laughs> really? That's your standard now? That's... I think that's a general standard in linguistics, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Sure. David, what are you doing? I was, I'm sorry. I was looking at the, uh, the cats. They were about to get into a tiff, but uh, I think it's all right. I think it's all right. <laughs> Great. Were you hissing at them? <laughs> no. So you heard that. I heard okay. you making some sort of sound. It didn't no, no, sound no. like that. That that wasn't me. That wasn't me. That was that was one of my cats that was making that. <laughs> oh, okay, okay. It would have yeah. been louder if it were me. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm I'm good with those palatal fricatives. I you know I feel like I would like to teach a language course. It might be fun. It would be because all you all you get to do all day is just stand there and correct people. <laughs> 